بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم صلي على نور الأنوار وسر الأسرار وترياق الأغيار سيدنا محمد فاتح الأبواب آمين يا رب العالمين الحمد لله So we are now on lesson 68 And last week we were speaking about the virtues of whom Whose manaqib and fadail were we talking about last week? Sayyida Fatima Az-Zahra Salamullahi Alayha The virtues of Sayyida Fatima And we were talking a bit about her life and her significance and the marriage between her and Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now to recap, not so much on the fada'il, but on the marriage itself. We mentioned last week that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not make a formal contract as of yet. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and Umar radiallahu anhu both approached the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and asked for her hand in marriage. And he did not outright reject them, but he indicated to them that he's waiting for inspiration concerning the matter of her marriage. And that inspiration came, and it coincided with Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and Umar going to Ali and suggesting that he asked for her hand in marriage. So Sayyidina Ali, we mentioned that he was at first a bit reticent and shy to ask because of his relative poverty at the time. And he was encouraged, so he went to the Prophet ﷺ and he asked him, will you marry Fatima to me? And the Prophet ﷺ asked him, what do you have? Meaning, what would you offer for the mahar? And he says, I have a horse. And I have some armor. And the Prophet ﷺ told him, As for the horse, you will need it. And as for the armor, you can go and sell it. So he went and sold this armor, which the hadith describes as hutamiyya armor, a very thick, heavy armor that would shatter swords and spears. He took that armor and he sold it for 480 dirhams. It's not a tiny sum of money, but it's also not a substantial sum of money either. So he sold it and he brought the 480 dirhams to the Prophet ﷺ and put it in his lap. And then the Prophet ﷺ took a handful of it and he called out to Bilal. He said, Ya Bilal, get us some perfume with this. So he hands him the money and instructs him to go buy some perfume. In one narration recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi in his Sunan, the Prophet ﷺ ordered that two-thirds of the money go for perfume and one-third for clothing. And he told them, purchase some perfume for Fatima as she is distinguished among women. And we talked about this last week. Today we want to talk a bit about the nikah itself, the jihaz, the concept of the jihaz and the preparation in her marriage. 
the walima itself and some of the virtues and lessons we can derive from that. And after that, inshallah, we go on to some other areas in the seerah. So we start with the hadith of Sayyiduna Anas ibn Madik radiallahu anhu. He tells us in the hadith that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam gathered some family, his family, and gathered some companions and officiated the marriage between Sayyidah Fatima and Ali. And Sayyidina Anas mentions that the Prophet wasallam on that occasion called for a plate of fresh dates. You know, whenever you hear dates and you hear fresh dates, what comes to mind? Maybe you think of the dates we have at Iftar. Those are not fresh dates, by the way. Fresh dates are the rutab. If you go to Mecca or Medina, you'll see them, the yellow dates. Those are the rutab, the, the, the fresh dates. And they're, they're better than the, the older dates that we have. So he calls for a plate of fresh dates, and he says to those present, take handfuls, take handfuls. So people coming in, they just take handfuls for themselves. And then Ali radiallahu anhu, he enters, and the Prophet sallallahu smiles at him and says, Allah has asked me to marry Fatima to you for 400 weights of silver. Do you agree? And Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu says, I agree, Ya Rasulullah. And to this the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, May Allah bring together yourselves and may He honor your providence, bless you, and bring forth from you many virtuous offspring. And this is a dua that He made for them at the time of the nikah. And this is recorded by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad. So from that narration and other narrations, we piece together this narrative of how the family and different companions were invited to be witnesses to the nikah and how the preparations were made and how the walima was celebrated. So the Prophet ﷺ, after officiating this and speaking to Ali, he then gave instructions for his daughter Sayyidah Fatima to be prepared for the wedding. And this is what we call the jihaz, right? When a person's ready, what do you say to them in Arabic? Anta jahiz, are you ready, are you prepared? So the jihaz is the preparation that the bride undergoes before she gets married and goes to the house of her husband. And this is in the form of being assisted in the dress, in the perfuming, in the jewelry, and also some pre-wedding celebrations among the women folk. This is different from culture to culture, but it's common across Muslim cultures and even non-Muslim cultures that the women will get together before the wedding and before the, the bride is seen off to her new house. So. Here the Prophet ﷺ tells the women folk to take Sayyidah Fatima and make preparations for her. It's important to hear about these preparations because we can contrast them and compare them with the preparations that are made today. There's lessons to be drawn from that. They took Sayyidah Fatima to help her prepare for the wedding. 
and they were also preparing gifts and things to give to her as she moved into this new house. So one hadith mentions that a bed was made for her. We think of these large mattresses and frames that we buy and that are really heavy and they're hard to get into our house, that have to be put together. Well, back then things were much simpler. And the bed that was made for her was made of ropes from palm fiber. So you take the the dried palm trees, you take them down off the tree, they dry off, you peel them into strips, and you make that into rope, and that becomes very strong. And from these ropes, you lace them, interlace them together until you make a bed, a kind of mattress, and then you make uh, uh, coverings and pillows or cushions that are stuffed with the palm fibers and the palm leaves. And we see this description of the Prophet's bedding as well in the Shama'il. In the Shama'il al-Muhammadiyah, we read the hadith that says his bedding was made in a similar fashion, and a leaf min edim. It was uh, a palm fiber, it was a leather mat with palm fiber stuffing. That's what we see in this hadith as well. It was a bed made of palm fiber and palm leaves with a cushion of leather stuffed with palm fibers as well. Now, the Prophet ﷺ also sent bridal gifts to his daughter. One hadith mentions that he sent her a velvet robe. Velvet here, it's not exactly velvet, but that's the closest word we have in English. It's a kind of velvet robe that was sent to her. He sent her also a a millstone. And I say the word millstone in English and no one uses millstones anymore. But in Arabic, tahuna, usually it's two millstones. You have the millstone. Uh, Usually you have a a heavy stone. It is uh, kind of, it's round or oval shaped. And you have another stone of similar size put above it. And there's a hole in both of them in which the wheat berries and barley or grains are put inside and it's moved around to crush those wheat berries and whatnot to make flour. This is called a tahuna. That was also gifted to her by her father, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He also gifted her a leather water skin. Leather water skin. Think of uh, sheep or goat uh, water skin. You take the hide, you turn it, you you basically remove all the hair and you stitch that well and layer it and you have this water skin that keeps the water cold. Not as cold as we would have water in our fridge, but relative to that time, that would be cold. So a water skin. He also gave her two jugs. So the jugs are for water and used for wudu and ghusl. Also, he gave her a sieve. What's a sieve? You use it to shake out the, the coarser, larger pieces of the grain so you can get the finer pieces when you make bread, right? He gave her a sieve and a towel, which is like a large, thick piece of cloth used for different purposes, and a cup. Now you think about that. These are, imagine if you were at a walima today and the father gives the, his daughter a cup, 
couple of containers, a towel, and maybe not a millstone, but maybe he gives her some kitchen appliance. Uh, how would people perceive that socially? What would they think of that as, uh, as gifts? But that's what he gave her. And this also shows us the precedent of the father gifting his daughter items that will facilitate her, her life in that new home as a wife. So as fathers, when you see your daughters off in marriage, of course you can give monetary gifts and gift cards or whatever, but you have this sunnah of giving gifts that are particularly suited for her new life in her husband's home. So this is what we find in the sunnah. Now Ibn Majah, he records in his sunan that the Prophet ﷺ went to the women folk and said to them, I have married my daughter to my uncle's son and you know her status with me and I will be sending her to him so here she is and he prepare her get her ready for moving into that new house so the women in the hadith it says that they upon hearing this they stood up and they escorted her to some private quarters where they perfumed her applied musk and helped her put on her wedding attire. Now the wedding attire is underneath the clothing that she would wear if she's going outside of the house. This is not her wearing a wedding attire that is displayed to strange men that are not mahram. Understand that. They're putting this on, the jewelry, the wedding attire. Uh, they went to the house that she was to move into, the house of Sayyidina Ali, and the hadith says that they went to this empty lot in Medina. Think of Medina at that time, it's very small. And you have all of these houses that are made of, they're, they're mud houses, they're made of uh, bricks, they're, they're mud that are dried out until they're bricks. And you have some empty lots, areas where people aren't living. So they went to this one area, this empty lot in Medina, where there was some rains and, the, and the, the ground was still a bit damp. And they took that soil because it was very fresh and damp. They collected that soil and rubbed it together and used that and they sprinkled the floor of the house with it. We live in houses that have wood flooring or carpeting. We don't live in houses that are with just earth as the carpet. The masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, like the homes, were of soil and some fine gravel. They didn't have carpeting back then. So they went with this fresh soil and they sprinkled it across the house to make it fresh. And this is so utterly foreign to our lived experience in the quote-unquote modern world. We don't have this anymore. But it's important to understand that this is how they lived their life. And also from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, we know that the Turab of Medina is a blessed Turab, it's a blessed soil. And that in the soil of Medina is Shifa, there's healing. So they're preparing the house like this and they're stuffing pillows and preparing these pillows to put in the house. And there's a lesson here too. Why would they need to stuff pillows? and bring these stuffed pillows into the house of Ali. Think about this. Before he gets married, what is Sayyidina Ali? 
He's a bachelor. He's a bachelor. Look at, if you have a man who has an apartment and he's, he's a bachelor, consider how drastically his apartment will change once he gets married. So the pillows are prepared and brought there because there's no pillows. It's just Ali, radiallahu anhu, Abu Turab. Right? So the house is prepared to make it comfortable for her as a woman. They bring the pillows. They also bring this tent pole. What's the point of the tent pole? They brought the tent pole into the house and put it in one of the corners. And that was used for her to hang these different items, the jugs, the clothing, the different things. They didn't, they didn't have closets. They didn't have the shelving system as of yet. This was how they would hang things, keeping them off the ground. So they brought all of these things into, into the house of Ali as it's being prepared uh, before the wedding takes place. So they get married. The nikah is officiated by the Prophet ﷺ himself. And he then says to everyone there, for every nikah, for every wedding, there must be a walima. There must be a celebration. And when he said that, the companion Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu says, I will provide a sheep. Is he from the family of the Prophet sallallahu Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas? How so? He's a relative but he's not the immediate family, right? So Sa'ad ibn Abu Waqqas says, I'll prepare a sheep. Someone else says, I'll bring corn. Dhurra. So different people are saying, I'll bring this and I'll bring that. And from that, we also learn a very important lesson. It is praiseworthy for relatives, distant relatives, and even non-relatives who are friends with the family on either side, friends of the groom or the family, friends of the bride or the family, it is praiseworthy for people to offer to bring things to facilitate the celebration, to facilitate that new life. It shouldn't just fall on the groom. It can. It can be the responsibility of the groom to foot the bill for the walima, but it is praiseworthy if other people offer to contribute different things, especially if the bride and groom are not wealthy, they're not well off. This is praiseworthy. And you see that in them demonstrating this brotherhood and desire to contribute. Ali, on his part, عنه, he actually went and bought some barley and he used this barley to have prepared for the walima. So the walima, if you look at it, is there's corn, there's barley, and there's a sheep. So the sheep is slaughtered and prepared. The barley is cooked and prepared in the way they will prepare in a very simple meal. And that was the walima. It was a very simple affair. And inshallah, we have some reflections on that uh, we'll offer uh, quite soon. So you have the nikah, the officiating of the marriage contract, done by the Prophet himself you have the jihaz her being prepared for the wedding and being sent off to Sayyidina Ali you have the walima and then you have the, the actual wedding night where 
the Prophet ﷺ sees off his daughter as she moves into this new household with her husband Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. In the mustadrak of Imam al-Hakim and in the tabaqat of Ibn Sa'd, there is a hadith which mentions that on the night of the wedding, the Prophet ﷺ spoke to Ali one-on-one. And he said to him, if she comes to you, let nothing occur until I come to you first. So meaning when she goes to the house, before you are with your wife, let me speak to you first. Let us have a one-to-one before that transition. So Fatima, radiallahu anha, she came into the house of Ali, and she was with Um Ayman, who has a very deep and strong relationship and a long history in the family of the Prophet ﷺ as the servant. So Um Ayman is escorting her to the house of Ali. They go inside of the house. Um Ayman, who's older, is sitting with Sayyidah Fatima on one side of the house, and Ali is sitting on the other side of the house. It's not a large house, but they're sitting on opposite sides of the house, and they're waiting. They're all there, they're waiting. And the Prophet ﷺ, he comes into the house and he says, is my brother here? Who is his brother here? It's Ali radiallahu anhu. But it's a surprising statement. He said, is my brother here? And Um Ayman was surprised at this statement and she says, your brother? And yet you marry your daughter to him? It, and he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Naam, Ya Um Ayman, indeed. Because this is not the biological brother. This is speaking about a brother in Islam. And everyone is subordinate and under the Prophet. No one is a peer on equal standing with Rasulullah. But when he uses the term Akh, it signifies the closeness of Ali to him. And in another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ referred to other people from his ummah as his ikhwa or ikhwan. And, he's, he, and those people are those who come after him. Who have such yearning and love for him that if they could sacrifice everything they have to see him, they would sacrifice. And the Sahaba said, are we not your brothers? And he says, no, you are my ashab. My brothers are those who come after me, who would sacrifice everything just to see me. So he uses the term brother in other occasions. But here he says brother to signify the closeness of Ali to him. So he comes in and he asks about Ali. And then he calls Fatima. Now Fatima is on the other side of the room in the house. And the hadith says that she stood up And as she's getting up, she's walking over and almost stumbling. Why? Because she's very nervous. She's very shy. And out of this modesty and shyness, her getting up is a bit awkward because it's a very special moment, but it's also one that makes her very nervous and shy because it's her wedding night. And that's how it is for women of Haya. So she almost stumbles over to him and then he says to her, his daughter, 
Calm yourself. Calm yourself. For I have married you to the most beloved of the members of my family to me. And then he made the dua. O Allah, as you have rid me of ridges, impurity, and purified me, I ask you that you purify Fatima. Now this is something the ulama call this a kind of iqtibas. Uh, I don't know what the word for iqtibas is in English. Maybe it's a kind of, a kind of borrowing or a deriving iqtibas min al-Qur'an. Uh, iqtibas here is you, know, you say in your own words something that alludes to a verse of the Qur'an. And this is a kind of iqtibas. And what is it referring to from the Qur'an? Does anyone know? No. This is in Suratul Ahzab. إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ أَهْلَ الْبَيْتِ وَيُطَهِرَكُمْ تَطْهِيرًا In the verse in Surah Al-Ahzab, Allah says, Allah only wishes to remove from you, O family, O people of the household, the ridges, impurity or defilement, and to purify you with an exacting, intense purification. So this is a kind of iqtibas, or it's a kind of, uh, it's a reference to, to that reality of the purity and the removal of any kind of impurity from the family of the Prophet wasallam. So he says, O oh Allah, as you have rid me of ridges and purified me, purify Fatima. That was his dua. And then he said to his daughter, bring me some water, bring me some water. So she goes and she gets a wooden bowl that was in the house. And we, we can presume that this was already there and not one of the gifts because the bowl isn't mentioned in the hadith, but it's mentioned here. She gets the bowl, she fills it with water and then brings it to him. And the hadith says that he then, uh, he did what we call nafath. You know, nafath, we don't say spit, but nafath is when you... There's three levels, right? We mentioned this in the Shema'il. There's the act of spitting, where there's air and saliva, majority of which is saliva. Then there's another degree where it's majority air and no saliva. And then there's the equal mixture of air and saliva. So the nafath is when you, you, know, you make the dua and you recite the, the three quls and you do the nafath, it's like that. So he does that into the water that she brought to him. He takes that water and he tells them, stand up. Sayyidina Ali, he tells him to stand and Sayyidina Fatima to stand. And he sprinkles her first with water and says, Oh Allah, I seek protection for her and her offspring from shaitan the accursed. And then he did the same with Sayyidina Ali. So he takes this water, sprinkles it on them with that dua. That dua is also iqtibas. It's also coming from a verse of the Qur'an. And the verse in question is the dua of Sayyida Maryam alayha salam. Inni u'idhuha bika wa dhurriyataha min ash-shaytan rajim Or is the dua of Zakariya rather. For Sayyidina Maryam and her offspring. Uh, oh Allah, I seek refuge uh, in you 
for her and her offspring from Shaytan al-Rajim. The mother of Maryam, rather, sahih. So this is a dua from Ali Imran, from the Qur'an, from the previous generations, the previous nations, for the offspring from which you get Sayyidina Maryam and Sayyidina Isa alayhimussalam. So he makes the same dua for Sayyidina Fatima and Ali, that Allah protects them and their offspring from Shaytan the accursed. Then he calls them and makes another dua. He says, O oh Allah, bless them in themselves. Put blessings upon them and bless their offspring for them. Give them barakah, put barakah upon them and barakah in their offspring. And after all of this, he then tells his now son-in-law, Sayyiduna Ali, go to your family, Bismillahi wa bi barakatillah. Go to your family in the name of Allah and with the blessings of Allah. And now everything has been formalized and final. He leaves the house and she is now in her new household as the wife of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. Now there's a lot to say about what transpired between this wedding until her passing and what happened with Sayyidina Ali until his passing. There's a lot of history there. But this is the start of that new family that will become the core of the Ahlul Bayt, the essence of the family of the Prophet where he says about them, This is my family. Of course, they would have children. How many children did the Fatima bear in total? Who do we know? We know Sayyidina Hassan and Sayyidina Hussein. There's a third son, Muhassan, Muhsan. He died very young. And then they had two daughters. There's Zainab, Al-Kubra. And then there's Umm Kulthum, also called Zainab Al-Sughra. Zainab Major and Zainab Minor. So they, they lived on, they lived on, and they died in the Umayyad period. Uh, the two daughters, and we know the story of Sayyidina Hassan and Hussein we've, we've mentioned before, but these are the offspring. So a total of five, but one of whom died young. So these are the offspring of Sayyidina Fatima and Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhuma wa ardahuma. There's more than one. There's more than one Umm Kuthum. History. No, but I thought he he did he did so to be part of Ahlul Bayt, the extended Ahlul Bayt. Uh, it's fuzzy in my memory. We'll check. So last week we we introduced this book. This book, Al-Aqdulluli, the Necklace of Pearls, and I recommended everyone to go buy it. For, is it. This is one of those books that you read it once or twice, but you just keep it because it's such a beautiful book. This is all about the the birth, the life the virtues and fada'il, uh, manaqib of Sayyidina Fatima Zahra. And this is written by Sayyid Muhammad bin Hassan bin Alawi al-Haddad who passed away last month, rahimahullah, uh, from Medina and also from the family of Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima from the Ahl-Bayt. And this is 
uh, a very beautiful book because it's not just a book praising her and her virtues, but it also uh, compares and contrasts her virtues with the state of the Muslims today and how far we have fallen from these ideals. So in the chapter on the marriage and the walima, I'll just read a couple of passages. In chapter 5, he writes about the wedding. He says, When the auspicious blessed marriage ceremony was over, the loving followers were delighted. Sayyidah Zahra was married off in the most magnificent procession to the house of our master Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib. وَسَارَ مَوْكِبَ الزَّفَافِ فِي فَرَحٍ وَاسْتِبْشَارٍ يَحُفُّ بِهَا نِسَاءُ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ حَتَّى وَصَلْنَ بِهَا إِلَى بَيْتِهَا الرَّفِيعِ بِجِوَارِ بَيْتِ أَبِيهَا صَاحِبٍ جَاهِ الْوَسِيعِ وَمَا أَنْ أَخَذَتْ مَكَانَهَا فِي الْبَيْتِ الْجَدِيدِ بِجَانِبِ زَوْجِهَا صَاحِبِ الْحَظِ السَّعِيدِ حَتَّى أَقْبَلَ ذُو الْطِلْعَةِ الْبَهِيَّةِ وَالْغُرَّةِ الْمُحَمَّدِيَّةِ Sayyiduna Muhammadun Khairul Bariya Liyatma inna alayha wa yukaddima ahla tahani ilayha Fakala sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Jama Allahu shamlakuma wa a'azza jaddakuma wa baraka alaykuma wa akhraja minkuma kathiran tayyiba Fastajab Allahu dua anabiyihi lahuma So the wedding procession, this is very beautiful prose the wedding procession proceeded with joy and happiness with the women of the Muhajireen and the Ansar surrounding it until they arrived at her sublime house next to the house of her father, the one of exalted rank. No sooner had she taken her place in the new house besides her new husband, the one of great fortune, when the majestic radiant one approached with Muhammadan splendor our Master Muhammad, the best of creation, to place them at ease and to greet them with the most pleasant greeting. The Prophet ﷺ said, May Allah unite you both and reinforce your forebears. May blessings be upon you both and may abundant good come forth from you. Allah responded to the supplication of His Prophet for them. So that's the end of chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, he talks about the mahar and the walima. And after describing it, he, he, he goes on to say, مَاذَا عَنْ مَهْرِ سَيِّدَ نِسَاءِ الْعَالَمِينَ سَيِّدَةِ نِسَاءِ الْعَالَمِينَ وَمَاذَا عَنْ جِهَازِهَا وَهِيَ بِنْتُ الصَّادِقِ الْأَمِينَ لَعَلَّ فِي ذَلِكَ عِبْرَةً لِلْأُمَّةِ وَدُرُوسًا مُهِمَّةً فِيمَا يَكْتَنِفُ أَمْرَ الزَّوَاجِ مِنَ الظُّلْمَةِ وَالْأُمُورِ الْمُدْلَهِمَّةِ What about the dowry for Sayyidah Fatima, the liege lady, master of the women of the worlds, and what about her belongings when she is the daughter of the most trustworthy? Perhaps, he says, within this is an example and lesson for the ummah regarding that which surrounds the affair of marriage, of excessiveness and conceit. 
كغلاء المهور والمباهات في القصور والإسراف في الموائد والإنجراف مع العوائد التي تلجئ الفقير إلى الاستدانة وتجعل الغني ينفق ما في الخزانة فلتكن لنا قدوة وأسوة بأهل بيت النبوة والنحضر من التكلف الذي يفضي إلى التأسف He says such as the rising cost of dowries the rising cost of the mahar and boasting in luxurious dwellings excessive spending on lavish meals and getting carried away with customs to the extent that the poor resort to taking loans while the affluent are obligated to spend out of their savings. There is a beautiful example for us in the prophetic household. Let us be wary of excess which will lead to regret. Now we want to make a distinction here between law and spiritual matters. بَيْنَهُمَا بَرْزَخٌ لَا There is a barzakh, there is, there is a distinction to be made between spirituality and law. Right? If you do not distinguish between the two, you end up making things haram that are not haram. Is it haram to have a nice beautiful walima with lights and nice food? It's not haram. It's not haram. As long as the means to it are not haram, or it doesn't lead to haram, or breaking of relations, or uh, blameworthy practices in the walima itself, of course, that's a given. So the author is not saying that it is haram to have a nice, lavish, beautiful walima, but he's saying that we have to, as an ummah, have a reality check. Do people really think that the walimas that they have are better and more perfect than the walima given to the best of women? It's not that you can't, you have to have a walima like hers, but it is a wake-up call that people should not go into excessive debt just to have a nice lavish walima to impress people who are going to backbite them anyway. So he's giving us a reality check. This is always going to be the ideal. You know, the mahar, what was the mahar again? 480 dirhams. Right? Is the mahar given to the wife a reflection of her value? If you give the woman a thousand dollars as a mahar, is that saying you're only worth a thousand dollars? Or if it's twenty thousand or fifty thousand? The mahar, the, the, the amount of the mahar does not correspond to the value of the wife. The, the mahar is a bridal gift. And the gift is dictated by custom. So in the custom of the people, the ada of the people, their urf, the standard mahar for someone of her social standing would be X amount of dollars or rials or rupees or whatever. is never a reflection of her value as a wife. So here's a reality check he's giving us. That there is, of course, things that are permissible in areas of walimas where we can spend more than people did in the past. But we have to have that reality check. It should not be done to the point of going into massive debt. You know, they have these, you ever heard of this term, bridezilla? 
This is a, it's a new English word. Bridezilla. It's a combination between bride and Godzilla. So it's a cultural phenomena. The bridezilla is the woman who looks at the walima, or not walima here, but just the wedding itself, as uh, her day, her day to shine. And uh, no expense is left uh, unpaid to make it as lavish and as fancy as possible. And there are studies showing that the more people spend in walimas or weddings, the uh, greater chance of that marriage ending in divorce. Because when the man is in debt for 20 years just to pay for the walima, you know, finances can stress a marriage faster than anything else. So there are some lessons there. Now drawing, going back to this story, Sayyidah Fatima, we have a hadith in Bukhari that speaks about her, her married life. She grew up in the household of the best of creation, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And in Sahih al-Bukhari, we find a hadith mentioning that after some time had passed in the household of Ali, the Fatima goes to the Prophet to ask him for a servant. There are battles, there are ghazawat, and in those ghazawat there are prisoners. These people become slaves, and that was a human reality, and it was before and it was after. So she asked for a servant, someone who can help in the household tasks. So she was having a hard time because she is grinding with that millstone gifted to her, the tahuna. Her hands were getting hardened. They were, she was feeling fatigue in her hands from using the grindstone. She was finding these household chores very difficult. And so she came and asked her father وسلم, for a servant that could come and help out around the house. The Prophet وسلم, refused. He refused. And he told her that he will give her something instead that is much better than a servant. He taught her something that he said is better for her than a servant. And that is what we know as the tasbih of Sayyidah Fatima the glorifications and dhikr of Sayyidah Fatima. What is the tasbih of Sayyidah Fatima? It is to say before you go to sleep, Subhanallah, 33 times, Alhamdulillah, 33 times, and Allahu Akbar, 33 or 34 times. This is known as the tasbih of Sayyidah Fatima, to be said before you go to sleep. And the ulama say that in this tasbih being transmitted from the Prophet ﷺ to his beloved daughter Sayyidah Fatima as something better than a servant, the scholars say that if a woman is finding her household responsibilities very burdensome, one of the ways of finding Al-Madad al-Ilahi, that divine support in tawfiq, that ability to uh, deal with these challenges that come in the household, the tawfiq, the, the secret of it is in the tasbih of Sayyidah Fatima. To be regular in it before you go to sleep, it is because it comes from Sayyidah Fatima, given to her by her father, 
when she's asking for help around the house. So if you want divine support in the burdens of managing the household uh, as a wife, then the tasbih of Fatima is mujarrab. It's one of those tried and true uh, remedies and ways of finding support. So you can use this weird before you go to bed and you take it with the intention of ease and facilitation in your home life to ease the burdens of caring for your family. Can men take this? Of course, because whatever the Prophet ﷺ transmitted is for everyone, unless he specifies that it's only for men or only for women. It's for everyone, but he gave it to his daughter in that specific context. And that context applies to many women who are dealing with uh, homemaking and managing the house and children and these types of uh, activities. So that is something that women can take. Now we come to a continuation of the Badr story. And you find a lot of the stuff that comes after the Battle of Badr is a direct or indirect consequence of the victory Allah gave the Muslims at Badr. And we come to another one of those consequences or after effects. And that is another assassination attempt. In the Meccan period of the Sierra, we talked about a few of those. A few of those assassination t- attempts against the Prophet wasallam. Uh, not to mention the pursuit of the Prophet when he was making the Hijrah. But after Badr came another assassination attempt. But in it is a beautiful, beautiful story that is filled with lessons for everyone. So this story, we have to go back to Medina to look at how this story builds up. This story comes from Ibn Hisham in his seerah, and it concerns two individuals. We start with Safwan ibn Umayyah. Who is Safwan ibn Umayyah? He is the son of Umayyah ibn Khalaf. What happened to Umayyah ibn Khalaf? He was killed at Badr. So this is the grieving son of one of the idol worshippers killed at Badr. Now, if we go back to Medina, one of the prisoners captured at Badr was Ubay ibn Khalaf. So when he and his son were ransomed, he left Medina for Mecca, but not before having some final words with the Prophet ﷺ. Ubay ibn Khalaf said to Rasulullah ﷺ as he was leaving Medina, O oh Muhammad, I have a horse named Aud that I feed every day several measures of corn. What's the point of saying that? It's a strong horse because he has the money to pay for all of this corn and he feeds this, corn, this horse several measures of corn every single day. It's a very strong and sturdy horse. He says, I feed it several measures of corn daily and I shall slay you while riding on that horse in the near future. These are the parting words of Ubay ibn Khalaf as he's leaving Medina. So he leaves Medina with a threat, a direct threat. How does the Prophet ﷺ respond? He says, Bel. What does Bel mean in Arabic? On the contrary, rather, 
it is I who will slay you, insha'Allah, if Allah wills. That's what he said. That's in Medina as Ubay is leaving. Meanwhile, in Mecca, Ubay's two nephews, Safwan and Umair, were sitting together and they were talking about this crushing defeat the, Mus- the Muslims dealt them at Badr and how many of the leaders of Quraysh were slain in battle. So we mentioned Safwan earlier, right? Safwan, he is the son of Umayyah. He is likely now, because his father was killed, he's likely now to become the leader of the clan of Jumah. So he is Jumahi, he'll now probably be the chief of his clan now that his father was killed. His cousin Umayr, if you remember, it's hard to keep up with the names, I know. But if you remember Umayr, this Umayr, <laughs> the several, this Umayr was the scout of Quraysh who said to Abu Jahl on the morning of the Battle of Badr, because he was scouting the numbers of the Muslims, and he went back to Abu Jahl and said, I don't think you'll be able to kill anyone among the Muslims until they kill at least one of you. And if there's 300 of them, and each one kills one of you, then what pleasure will you gain from winning? So he was the scout. So he's back in Mecca talking with Safwan, whose father was killed at Badr. And they're bitter. Umair's son is in Medina as a prisoner of war. And Umair is heavily in debt and can't pay for the ransom. So he was a scout, he got away, but his son was captured and is a prisoner of war in Medina. He's uh, heavily in debt and bitter from the experience and he cannot pay the ransom to free his son. So he's sitting with Safwan, whose father was killed at Badr, and they're both very bitter at this defeat. And as they're talking, they're by themselves. No one is around. No one can hear them. This is Musamara, you know, that nighttime private conversation you have with someone. No one else is around. They're conversing. And as they're talking, Umair, uh, Safwan begins to curse the Prophet And Umair says to him, were it not for the fact that I owe so-and-so and so-and-so all this money, and were it not that I have family I have to care for here in Mecca, I would go on my own to Medina and kill Muhammad with my, by myself. For they have destroyed my family, and my son is one of their prisoners. He's broke. Safwan is not. So Safwan... Hearing Umair say this, he, see, he sees an opening here. So Safwan says to him, because Umair is a very wealthy man, and he says to Umair, what if I paid your debt? And what if I looked after your family and treated them like my own? Would you go? Would you go to Medina like you just said? What if I pay your debt and take care of your family? Will you go and agree to kill Muhammad that's what Safwan said and Umair was not just talking to talk he wasn't talking a big game he was serious so when the offer came from Safwan to have the debt paid and his family looked after Umair agreed to it he says I will do it but do not tell a single soul keep this conversation private between the two of us and they agreed 
So immediately, Ibn Hisham narrates that Umair got his belongings and he sharpened his sword and he put poison on the sword. He soaked it with poison, put it in the scabbard, got his belongings and went straight to Medina all by himself without telling a soul. So he goes to Medina and it takes him two weeks to get there. When he arrived in the city, he was... uh, he had his face covered with the turban. You can, you know, you have the the tahnik is when you wrap it around the neck. But here, the part, the portion that's covering the neck is lifted up, covering the face. So he enters Medina like this with his face covered, and that's normal. It's not out of the ordinary for for a traveler to come into Medina looking like that. Why? Because sandstorms, wind, it it, it all gets in your face and your eyes. That's what people do. So he enters Medina with his face covered and he goes straight for the masjid. As he's walking to the masjid, who sees him? Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu. And Umar recognizes those eyes. He can see in that portion, you know, he can recognize those eyes, those hateful eyes of Umair, and he knows that he's up to something. So Umar is about to draw his sword and he says, where do you think you're going? Stop, you dog. I will deal with you. I'll deal you a deadly blow. I shall smite you with my sword. And Omer tries to calm him down and says, I, I, it's okay, it's okay. Meanwhile, the Prophet ﷺ is sitting in the masjid and he sees at a distance what's going on. He tells them to go to Omar and say, allow Omer to come in. Allow him to come and sit. So Omar tells the Ansar, who are now escorting Umair, have him sit, but be on guard. Watch out for this guy. So one narration says it was Omar himself who walked with him directly, with his sword in his hand, unsheathed. But at any rate, Umair gets to the Prophet ﷺ, and he gives him the traditional jahili greeting of In'am Sabaha, which is the jahiliya way of saying good morning. The Prophet ﷺ says, Allah has given us something better than that. And it is the greeting of Ahlul Jannah. It is the greeting of Assalamu Alaikum. So then Umair is sitting with the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet asks him, why have you come? Umair, we all know why Umair has come to Medina. He is asked by the Prophet ﷺ and he says, I've come to negotiate a ransom for my son so you can send him back with me. And to this, the Prophet says, if that's the case, then why the sword? And Umair says, and I'm translating this as accurately as possible, when he's asked about the sword, he says, oh, this damn sword, what good did it do us at Badr? That's a close translation. He's basically trying to say, oh, this, these damn swords, what good are they? He's trying to deflect and make it seem that he's only there for the ransom. And now the Prophet ﷺ says to him, tell the truth. Why have you come? And Umar says, I've come to negotiate a ransom for my son. And then the Prophet ﷺ says to him, wait a you, Umar, you said, were it not for the fact that I owe so-and-so money, 
And were it not for the fact that I have family I must care for here in Mecca, I will go on my own to Medina and kill Muhammad himself, for they have destroyed my family and my son as one of their prisoners. Didn't you say that? He recounted the entire conversation between Umair and Safwan bin Umayyah. Remember, that was Musamara. It was a private conversation. It was only two of them. And remember that Umair said to Safwan, don't tell a soul. He recounted the entire conversation. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Safwan took it upon himself to pay your debt and care for your family so you could come here and assassinate me. But Allah has come between you and that. And at this point, Umair said, Who told you this? Man Who told you this? Wallahi, there was no third man among us. It was just the two of us. How could you have known that? Who told you? And he says, Jibreel told me. And then Umair says, We called you a liar when you brought us the Bishara, the glad tidings from the heavens. But praise be to Allah who has guided me to Islam. Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. And he becomes a Muslim. This is a man who has a sword with poison on the blade, who went traveling for two weeks all by himself in rocky terrain just to assassinate him. And he's right before him. And look how Allah changed the heart like this. Is there anyone who is fiercer in opposition to him than Umair? How can we give up on people in their Islam? Allah turns the hearts. He is muqallib al-qulub. He is the turner of hearts. Just a few feet away from him and Allah destined guidance for him. So the lesson in that is you can't write people off. You cannot say this non-Muslim is so rude, so bad that there, it, it's impossible that Allah can guide him. No one could ever say that. How can you limit the power of Allah to turn the hearts? The bitterest of foes became the most beloved of friends because Allah guides whom he wills. And there are people who, were, who had, they had love and support for the Prophet They weren't in opposition, but they didn't die with Iman. So it's not just about being nice. Some of the people who are the meanest to Muslims and who are the bitterest foes of Islam end up becoming Muslim and being its most, uh, its, its strongest supporters, as we see in the case of Umair. So the Prophet ﷺ then tells Umar, teach your brother about the religion and help him to memorize some Quran and free his captive, his son. So he goes as a kafir to kill the Prophet ﷺ, and he leaves as a Muslim with his son ransom without him paying a, a penny. A single dirham. We also see here that the Prophet ﷺ sent, told Omar to teach him some Quran. And then that's a lesson to facilitate education, to facilitate uh, new Muslims learning their deen and giving them foundations from elders, people who have more experience uh, as converts, as Muslims, teaching them uh, the foundations of the religion. Now, Omar went back to Mecca and he was very eager to call people to Islam. So this is a couple weeks out. It's a one-month story. Two weeks to get there, two weeks to get back. He comes back calling people to Islam. Right? Now, Safwan is expecting 
him to come back within two weeks with the news that he was successful in his operation. So without spilling the beans, as it were, Safwan is going around in Medina saying, I have a, there's a huge surprise coming in two weeks. A huge surprise. I'm not, I'm not saying he did this, but I can imagine someone like him you know, rubbing his hands together like, yeah, some big surprise is coming in two weeks. And two weeks come by, what's the big surprise? Umayyad became Muslim, and he's calling the people to Islam. Now after this, Safwan didn't speak to him ever again. He just cut him off entirely. He was so enraged, he called him a traitor and, and didn't speak to him after that. So, you know, the, what Umayyad said, uh, this is one part, before he went to Mecca, he said to the Prophet them, Ya Rasulullah, I used to strive to, to extinguish the light of Allah and to torture the people who embraced Islam. So I ask your permission, your idhin, to call people to Islam as I tried to push them away before. And I used to uh, injure you and harm you and your companions, but now let me go back to defend you. And he received the idhin, the permission of the Prophet ﷺ to go back in that role as a da'i, calling people to Islam. So he gets back to Mecca. You may wonder, if he's a Muslim now, what's going to happen to him in Mecca? He's got tribal status. His status in the tribe ensures that he's more or less protected. No one's going to really harm him. But it didn't mean that people were all going to be friendly with him. So he was unharmed in calling people to Islam there. Now, some months later, he left Mecca for good to make hijrah to Medina. But what's so interesting about this story, the Dawa story of Umair, is that when he gets back to Mecca and begins calling people to Islam, he is calling people to Islam who already heard the message from Rasulullah so you have the one of a lower status calling people to Islam who heard it from someone of a higher status, the highest status. So this means there, there's something here that as more and more people are becoming Muslim, you have the social status, social proof. If more and more people are becoming Muslim then those who were holding out or not really listening will now listen as more and more people become Muslim. This is important to understand because often the, it's the case that isolated converts to Islam or converts in areas where there are not many Muslims, they tend to be people who are different from the average person in their town or society. They tend to be seekers and they tend to be people who are not afraid to go against the grain of society. That's good and Allah guides people in a variety of ways. However, the struggle is in creating a critical mass where the average person is receptive to Islam. And a lot of that comes through social proof when they see more and more, quote-unquote, ordinary people becoming Muslim. So there's a value in that. Even if he's of a lower status, there's a value in more and more people calling to Islam because as more and more become Muslim, that gives Islam what we call social proof. And some people who may have held out before may listen and Allah opens their hearts through those means. So inshallah we'll stop there. And uh, 
next week we move on to the pre-Uhud experiences. We're not going to go to Uhud until after Ramadan, but we're going to look into the lead up and what was going on in Medina and elsewhere right before Uhud begins, insha'Allah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Is it on or off? That's on. It's on? That was fine. I was about to say, had a beautiful saying about Umayyad. When he came in, was hated more than like an animal. Then he came out more beloved than some of his... Right, he said this, right? More, more hated than a lowly animal and more beloved than some of his own children. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No. You're, you're looking for iqtibas for iqtibas. That's you see iqtibas in terms of uh, the definition. So I, it's in Surah Al-Hadid. Daruna uh, naqtabis. No. It's, it's being translated as acquire. Acquire. I thought more like your sense of borrow. To borrow or draw from. Yeah. Can we take some of that for ourselves? Yeah. So it's actually a legal issue. It's a fiqh issue as well. The ruling on iqtibas from the Qur'an. Can you say... Uh, can you take a verse of Quran or a phrase from a verse and use it in ordinary speech when addressing someone? So, so say someone is knocking on your door. Can you say to them, "Udkhuluha bi salam," enter with peace? This is, I mean, the ulama differ about this, and there's some parameters for the lawful and unlawful usage of iqtibas in everyday conversation. This is not iqtibas like that. This is taking a word or a term that is Qur'anic in, in origin or part of a verse and it being within the du'a made. Not just taking a verse and making that as a du'a, but something from a verse and a kind of iqtibas from it in the du'a itself. Right? That's permissible because you're basically using Qur'an within the du'a. It's absolutely fine. It's the former. So you said there's different opinions. If it's done in a in, in with with levity, or in a way that is disrespectful, or uh, denigrating to the reverence that is owed to the Quran and Kareem, uh, one would not be allowed to do iqtibas like that, right? Uh, you know, there's permissible forms, and then there's impermissible forms. So, yeah, yeah. So one should be one should be mindful, but it's it is permissible in du'as. It is permissible in uh, certain praiseworthy phrases when a person is you know you find this in the books of the ulama in the dibaj. They sometimes use verses or portions of verses as they're introducing the topic. Right. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Fique.